Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. It's time for you. A podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Fiona MacArthur, a network coordinator for Sheep Connect New South Wales. The Sheep Extension Network in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aim is to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on information about all things sheep. With summer fast approaching, the focus for sheep producers in some areas shifts towards the effects of summer temperatures and extreme heat events on the reproductive efficiency of ewes and rams. In this episode of It's Time For You, I'm joined by Dr. Gordon Refshogi to discuss the effects of heat stress on reproductive efficiencies and the ways this can be mitigated. Dr. Gordon Refshogi is a research scientist with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. He is based at the Cowra Agricultural Research and Advisory Station and has worked there since 2008. His research experience is vast and includes studies in sheep and goat reproduction, meat science, genetics, wool production, nutrition, thermoregulation, ewe management, disease case studies and technology development. Welcome Gordon and thank you for joining me on It's Time For You. Thanks very much Fiona. Gordon, to start us off, has industry quantified yet the cost of heat stress to the Australian sheep industry? Yeah, for the for the Australian sheep industry, yes. Recent work by the research group at the University of Adelaide, which has been led by William Van Wetterer, has estimated the costs, the current costs uh, of heat stress and its effects on the sheep industry to lie somewhere between $97 and $168 million per annum. Uh, of course, there's a number of assumptions that sit in behind those estimates. Uh, and including the climate change scenarios where under those new new climate scenarios, we can expect those costs to increase to 169 and up to $268 million per annum. And when you consider uh, the global effects on animal production of heat stress for all of the production species, uh, the costs are in the billions of dollars. And how has our climate been changing looking at different temperature and rainfall across our state and what influence or potential influence could this have on our reproductive animals? It's such a good question and unfortunately uh, climate change has become a terribly divisive issue with all sorts of viewpoints and misinformation available. There's a lot of technical stuff in there and it's pretty uh, complex and hard to keep your mind around. However, uh, it's overwhelmingly clear that the global and the Australian temperatures are rising. Locally, anyone can find this information on examples like the number of days above 32 degrees, above 40 degrees, and the high and the extreme heat stress days, and they'll see that those, um, those indicators are increasing. You can find your local weather information uh, via the Long Paddock Silo website and get the get point data um, and you can just go have a look for yourself. Compared to long-term averages, we are experiencing between two and a half and three times more extreme heat in the last 20 years compared to the long-term. 
What follows that, of course, by default, is a reduction in the number of days that reach the, that stay inside the thermoneutral zone, which is also called the comfort zone. We know that uh, temperatures around 32 degrees are, are associated with lower pregnancy rates in sheep, and days exceeding 41 degrees will lead to massive failure rates for newly shed eggs and early embryos. Uh, heat stress affects every stage of reproduction, which includes sperm development, the sexual activity of ewes and rams, the follicle in the ovary of the ewe, the egg, the embryo, placental development, blood flow to the placenta and the fetus, fetal development as a consequence of lower blood flow. Uh, that has impacts because of lower birth weight on survival, but also hypothermia uh, at the time of birth can affect lamb survival. And of course, milk production is impaired. And for those newly weaned lambs, uh, you get reductions in feed intake, which affects growth rate and also risks their survival. So the potential for heat stress to affect animal production and reproduction is very high, but it does depend on where you are, when you mate, what natural resources you may have available and the timing of the heat waves. A, a rapidly changing climate is also a major threat because it's like moving your farm hundreds and hundreds of kilometres north and northwest. So for example, for Cowra's heat profile, it's now much more like Trini's historical heat profile. And that shift started happening in 1998 and it hasn't stopped being like that. In the last five years, our heat profile has continued to move northwest from Trangy, if you like. So it's like we're sort of, you're fixed on the globe and the globe's now rolling sort of in a southeasterly direction and you're moving close to the heat. So the climate is changing and it has those potential impacts on animal reproduction. And Gordon, you've just mentioned so many consequences there for our reproductive animals, but in terms of reproductive efficiency, how do you define heat stress? Yeah, I, I call it like a battle between the sources of the heat uh, and played out inside the body around the body's natural, natural temperature range, which is called the set point temperature. As those external heat sources and the heat production from digesting food and from the metabolic activity of the cells. As those heat sources rise and get closer to the set point temperature, the animal starts to have to change its behavior and its physiology to start shedding heat out of its body. Otherwise it moves into hypothermia range and that's where it wants to avoid. That's the definition for heat stress, which is really the demand on the body to get heat out of the body. Uh, that, that demand, and comes from hot air and hot surfaces, as well as, as I said, digestion and met metabolic heat. Um, as an, an animal is said to be in heat stress when its body temperature rises above that natural body temperature. And so the mechanisms to shed heat from the body uh, then include increases in panting. Uh, for example, 60% of the sheep's heat dissipation comes from panting. For cattle, it's about 80% of their heat shedding uh, is from sweating. Uh, but for sheep, there's also sweating. There's drinking more water, there's seeking more shade, and there's even uh, eating less feed. Reproduction will be impaired under these conditions via a number of pathways. So in terms of heat stress, we've got a definition there, uh, and the impact on reproductive efficiency really starts to focus on uh, two, two areas. One is the impact on the hormones, and in particular, the governor of reproduction, which is the gonadotrophin-releasing hormone, uh, GNRH, we, we call it in its acronym, 
is produced by heat itself, by the, body, by the temperature of the body, uh, but it's also impaired when the animal eats less feed and uh, enters into a negative energy state, which really arises after long heat waves and low feed intake, uh, low quality feed intake. Um, but then you also have a stressed animal which has a higher um, concentration of cortisol in its bloodstream as a, as a response to stress. And cortisol also lowers gonadotropin releasing hormone content. Now together, these uh, the effects on the governor hormone act to lower the sexual activity uh, and also affects normal hormonal sequencing, which leads to issues around the time of estrus, so the expression of heat, but also it impairs the, the quality and development of sperm and the egg. There are also metabolic consequences of heat stress, such as the production of oxygen radicals. And they, when they build up too quickly in the body, uh, they can damage sensitive cells, such as sperm and, and egg producing cells, so the tissues that create sperm and egg, as well as the embryo. So there's a number of pathways that heat stress can affect reproduction. So we obviously, we know a fair bit about heat stress. So historically, where has the research focused on in this area? Yeah, most of our knowledge comes from very old studies, many decades ago. The older studies focused a lot on the embryo and they would do things like maintain animals at a constant temperature for hours or days or weeks or months. Um, and that was really about demonstrating what are the catastrophic and what are the short term and consequences of uh, heat stress. So we know a lot from the older studies, but they use temperature profiles that didn't reflect the real world, which has our natural diurnal variation, hot days and, and maybe hot nights, but you've got a change in the temperature profile. So a lot of, the, a lot of our understandings really around the embryo particularly, uh, but more recently, Research led by uh, other production species such as the dairy cow, or the pig and the chicken. Uh, there's been a lot of lab work done with mice and rats as well. We've learned a great deal more about those researchable areas that can be applied to sheep. Uh, there's been a lot of excellent work undertaken for field studies, particularly uh, in Australia, in Western Australia, South Australia and Queensland. There's some great work was done in the 1960s, but by and large, it's all fairly old and most of it focuses in New South Wales was on the rams. Uh, in Queensland, we were looking at the effects on, uh, when I, that's the royal weed, by the way, uh, the researchers were looking at the impact on the pregnancy, on the pregnant animal and the consequences for the neonate, the lamb, and its production. In Western Australia, they were looking at field studies, looking at uh, the ability of heat to impair the pregnancy rates in those animals. So we've got the components covered. There hasn't been any studies that I'm aware of that look at milk production uh, or weaner survival under heat stress conditions in Australia. Gordon, recently you joined me on the Sheep Connect New South Wales webinar series and we did a really fantastic webinar on this and you mentioned that the incredible ability of animals to um, adapt and acclimatise to different situations, how do they do that to manage heat stress? There's a lot of pathways available to the animal to, so it can navigate its way through metabolic, physiological and behavioural pathways. The first 
actions are called uh, acclimation, sorry, excuse me, acclimation. And they include seeking shade, drinking more water. Uh, over time, as the heat load builds up over many days, they start to eat less feed as one of the first responses. You can see that uh, maybe in the second day of the heat wave, there'll be a reduction in feed intake and a changing in the grazing pattern. There'll be increased respiration rate and heart rates. Blood flow to the skin increases to allow uh, uh, the escape and dissipation of heat from the body. There are changes in the production of hormones such as insulin and thyroxine, which will act to lower the metabolic activity of the body. Then there's also acclimatization, which is different, different to acclimation. Acclimation is the short-term immediate response. Acclimatization does happen fairly quickly as well and can happen in the short term, but it has its longer-term consequences for how an animal navigates the heat wave in a hot summer. So acclimatization is really the body's way of getting used to the heat. And we know in our own experience that after a hot summer, we sense, we get a sense of dread uh, for thoughts of a cold winter. And that the first uh, autumn day, you reach for a jump, jumper in the morning, you think, oh, how am I gonna cope with winter? And then as you roll, as you roll through winter, uh, you get into the first early spring day, that's 30 degrees, a lot of humidity around, you're thinking, oh, how am, I going to, how am I going to cope with summer? And that's really because you've acclimatised to the recent climatic conditions. Uh, so that's how our body works together. There's physiological changes, respiration rates, there's behavioural changes, shade seeking, uh, and then there's uh, metabolic changes that happen inside the body driven by changes in hormones. So Gordon, what are the consequences of heat stress during the joining phase on reproductive success? So for naturally mated flocks, uh, the consequences of heat stress during joining uh, are lower pregnancy rates, firstly. There's also changes to the distribution of lambs being born in the first or the second half of lambing. In really severe hot conditions and, and to impair placental blood flow, the, the literature is pretty thin on that, but it suggests that something like 10 consecutive days of heat. So you really need a heat wave. So during joining, it's possible that the, the hormones that, uh, and uh, the, the growth factors that kick off the development of the placenta and set up the, the vascular architecture that supplies blood to the fetuses can be impaired by heat stress as well. And it may take a heat wave to do that. And so that can happen also during joining. And if you join before the heat waves, it can, an impairment to blood flow can also be a consequence and it's a permanent effect on the pregnancy. So if you have a, a, a long heat wave, you can have an impairment in placental blood flow, which lowers birth weight. So those are the, the sorts of changes we see. So in, in hot environments, there is a tendency for producers to make their flocks for more cycles, and that will have its own effect on animal production in a, rather than necessarily reproductive success, but it leads you to a flock that has a long tail of smaller lambs that can be that can be difficult to manage, and flocks that experience lower reproduction rates normally will also tend to retain more older ewes. So the consequences of heat affecting reproduction aren't just in low pregnancy rates; it can be lower birth weights, which increases the susceptibility to cold weather and increases the chance of mortality. But then the whole farm system can be affected by um, management changes like increasing the number of mating cycles uh, and the retention of old years.
So if we're out and about with our flocks, how can we tell if our sheep are experiencing heat stress? Respiration rate, that's, that is your key indicator. So breaths per minute is respiration rate. When breaths per minute exceeds 100, uh, then you've got an animal that's entering into some, some of the phases of heat stress. It means the animal's working hard to get heat out of its body. As that rate approaches and then passes 200 breaths per minute, the animal is now starting to approach extreme heat stress conditions. So that's when we start to really see those serious metabolic consequences, metabolic acidosis and the increase of oxygen radical production. And that really happens for around 180 breaths per minute. Uh, so to get that number, you just simply look at the flank of the sheep and count how many breaths that animal takes in 15 seconds and multiply it by four, and that's a good enough indicator. Another indicator will be open mouth breathing and tongue out open mouth breathing. Breathing, and they are very solid indicators of heat stress. And so too uh, is standing up. If an animal's in shade, open mouth breathing, they'll be standing up. And, and they do that really to get their body off the hot ground, which is a hot surface and it's a source of heat. And they try then to allow the wind to move under as well as over their body by standing up. So there's a couple of indicators. Respiration rate is the guide. Uh, and then there's behavioral changes, shade seeking, drinking more water and standing up in the shade. And has research touched on if there's sort of a temperature range that we should start to um, take a little bit more of a focus that we could potentially have a problem on farm? Such an interesting question. The, there was a study done of natural flocks, natural mated flocks in Western Australia. It was operating from 1969 through to 1974. Uh, and they revealed a relationship between the number of days above 32 degrees and lower pregnancy rates. So they established a correlation between those two, a negative correlation between those two that was significant. You roll forward about 20 years to a study in South Australia by uh, Dave Kleeman and Simon Walker uh, at Sardi, and they studied from 1989 through to 1993 and looked at the data in the same way and found the same effect as the number of days on average during mating increases uh, that are above 32 degrees increases, you get a significant reduction in the pregnancy rates. So 32 degrees is the first cutoff. Now, remember, we're going back into our early climatic record in terms of the meteorological data set, which is 30 to 50 years. We're going back 50 years and in our own data records, we know that that was a fairly cool time. It wasn't really common to find temperatures really very much a great, uh, much above commonly and typically all the time above 32 degrees, whereas today we're, we're much more likely. For example, Cowra was getting between 20 and 30 days above 32 degrees uh, in the 19th, early 1970s and now in the late 2010s and early 2020, you know, we're getting 70, 80, 90 days above 32 degrees. So it's two to three or maybe even four times more frequent. So they'd probably set 32 degrees as where you can draw a line to get a good data set. So today we roll it forward to today and we start to think maybe, you know, we can look at sperm production in the rams and temperature relationships between the body temperature of the ram and the testes and the external environment and we're starting to look at 35 degrees and, and 39 degrees as being 
critical temperatures. So from 32, there are demonstrated historical effects. Um, and in sort of specific absolutes, 35 plus, 39 plus, that's when we really are going to expect to see these outcomes. Gordon, we just identified that the real key period that's going to cause us a lot of trouble is during our joining. And we spoke briefly before about um, the risk to our naturally joined animals. Does this differ if we're doing AI? Yeah, the heat waves are much more of a risk to an AI and an embryo transfer program than for natural mating. Uh, not just because in a natural mating system, the animals have a second cycle to conceive but because the reproductive technology programs are set to occur on a specific day. So if, you're, if you've got your date set on you know, the Monday, Tuesday of the week and an extreme heat wave comes through on the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday and the Wednesday, then it lands right in the middle of your program, right at the time of ovulation and the chances the body has to conceive. Whereas for natural mating, there's at least, at least two opportunities for the ewes to conceive. Severely heat stressed rams will still have problems with sperm quality and that can last up to a fortnight, up to six weeks. So if you've got rams that are being prepared for semen collection, um, then the heat, heat waves in the two to six weeks before that time can affect that outcome and therefore the quality of the sperm. Um, heat stressed ewes, of course, may not implant a conceived embryo uh, if they're conceiving at the time of the extreme heat stress, which will happen in AI, but they'll continue to cycle normally and they'll be available at the next conception in 16, 18 days later. So the backup rams will pick them up, but that's the consequence. You put money on the line in the reproductive technologies and the risk is you get a bad weather event and it can cost you dollars because you get such low preg rates. I'd like to change focus now, Gordon. We've really gone through a lot about heat stress there. I'd really like to talk about now how producers can mitigate the risk of heat stress. So I'd like to kick off with, is there a possibility to manipulate their nutritional intake in order to minimise the risk? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, and, and the answer is that there are nutritional solutions to help mitigate the risk of heat stress. Uh, for example, Lowering grain intake and increasing roughage intake is one way to lower heat production in the rumen, and that also helps to stabilise the rumen. So heat stress isn't just really about reproduction. Uh, there are a lot of implications for gut health and immune function in the body. So by providing a bit of extra roughage at that time, you get a happier rumen, and that's central to the happier animal ultimately. Uh, there's been really good quality research into a handful of the potential antioxidants. And the list of antioxidants is pretty long uh, from minerals and some vitamins and there's some other uh, nutritional products like chromium, picolinate and betaine that have been shown to affect body temperature and respiration rate favourably. There's dose sensitivity around those. Uh, so currently the antioxidant research however hasn't been studying the effects on protecting reproduction. Uh, but we are confident they will, and we continue to seek funding in, in the collaboration I'm culturing uh, to support that sort of proposal. Uh, however, the rates of antioxidants um, that are required are pretty high, and so we need to understand how to deliver those in an extensive system. So if you're manipulating uh, nutritional intake, you, you really, in, a, in the real world today, 
coming into this summer when there's not a lot of scientific findings to delay, you know, to, to relay out to you, you would think about providing more roughage for your containment fed animals. Uh, and if you are feeding on a, on a daily basis, you might consider feeding uh, in the early morning rather than in the early afternoon or evening. And that's because the obligatory heat production from digestion of the food is going to increase the body temperature of the animal. So that happens during the middle of the day when the animal's hot anyway. It'll seek shade anyway, it'll drink more water anyhow. But, it, but if you feed it late in the evening, what you do is delay the heat profile of the body. When the temperature, when the sun sets, the temperature starts to come out of the system. This is when the animal has its chance to lower its body temperature, but you've just fed it and that increases its body temperature or sustains it longer. So feeding in the morning versus in the afternoon during heat waves and providing more roughage are the tricks that you've got available at the moment. Oh, that's good practical advice. How can producers practically then modify, say, their environment? And I guess I'm thinking in terms of shade and water here to then minimise the risk further. Yes, yeah, shade is central to the story of how we're going to manage climate change and how we think about managing heat uh, today. Uh, we've got a number of tools that we can put into our toolkit. They'll be nutritional modification, there's environmental modification, providing natural artificial shade, and there's management options and genetic options, which we'll get to. Uh, but so shade is a part of the story, and no one solution is the, the solution for all scenarios, and we need a mix of these things. So shade central to this discussion. The provision of shade, however, isn't mandatory under the Australian Animal Welfare and uh, welfare standards and guidelines. It is advised and the language around it uh, is that shade should be provided or consideration should be made to provide shade. So it's important. Um, we don't know how much shade is important. We know that in beef feedlots we need around 3.2 square metres of shade per beast uh, and some work that was done looking at weaning weights in lambs in South Africa in autumn when the weather during that uh, that study wasn't particularly hot, but it did show that there was a benefit in weaning weights when about 0.7 square metres of shade was provided to the sheep. So if you're thinking about building a shearing shed, for example, you're planning on how many animals you need to store in that shed um, appropriately, and you usually target around 0.3 square metres per head. Uh, so we're talking about at least more than twice that in the paddock. And if we think also about water troughs, water troughs that have shade um, have a lower temperature of the water, and that's also going to help the animal. But in terms of specifics, there's nothing really, no, there's no specific information that's been tested for Australian conditions at the moment. So we just know that shade's really important. You, you'll see sheep, sheep uh, chasing shade in autumn, uh, sorry, in August. You know, lambing ewes will go and stand under shady trees you know, during winter. Um, so what does that tell us? If the animals want to use it, they'll use it. So we probably should be making it available. And Gordon, you just hinted then on uh, genetic options. And we know that in agriculture, that genetics often holds the keys to help us manage a number of different problems. Is there natural variation between animals for heat tolerance? 
It's a great question, and the answer is uh, pretty easy to deliver, to deliver and short. So the answer is yes, there is. Uh, there is variation in heat tolerance between breeds and also within breeds. Um, there's examples looking at uh, sheep breeds of the tropics and subtropics, uh, and there's examples in the literature that show that there's considerable variation even in uh, these heat tolerant animals. So there's a, there is variation. The question we have is how are we going to measure this? And our management calendar is core to what we do on farm. Should producers consider changing any of their management practices to help minimise heat stress on reproduction? Yeah, another great question. So the answer is yes. Um, producers, firstly, it starts with where you are and that will guide what it means for you and how serious it is for you. If you're in the northern tablelands or the southern Monero, then heat isn't really a feature very often. If you're in the central west of New South Wales or central Queensland, particularly central Queensland, heat's, uh, you know, you wake up and eat heat for breakfast, it's always there. So. How you modify your management system or how you have created your exact your management calendar is influenced by where you are. And when you choose to lamb your ewes down, for example, it's going to be guided by things like feed availability, critically. Uh, maybe cold weather is a consideration there. Definitely grass seed production for the weaners. Uh, how hot it is if you mark the lambs you know, at that time. Uh, the quality of the forage in late spring and summer. So those are the things that influence when animals are mated and when they lamb because of not necessarily uh, the heat, the considerations around do I want to grain feed these animals or do I want them eating natural pasture? And if I want them eating natural pasture, when do I uh, join those ewes so I still have grain feed in front of the lambs when they're weaners? And so those are the decisions that are complex that sit in around why we're operating at the time of the year that we operate. And then you overlay that with mixed farming systems where there's time of sowing and harvest operations and, and harvest management or crop management. The challenge for the sheep producer is also uh, the five month gestation. So joining in summer often means lambing in cold weather too. And in some years you can get a double whammy. The sheep copes pretty well and productively when mated in March and April which is the best balance for maximising lambing rates naturally using melatonin, natural melatonin and day length response. And you get, uh, you've get you got feed available and you've got milder lambing conditions and so your lamb survival and therefore your weaning rates are also higher. But that doesn't suit everybody's production system. With climate change, we're also seeing our springs cut out more often and earlier, uh, which is also changing the thinking around the time to join. And I think it's pushing people a little more into summer matings. And so too is the rapid adoption of dual purpose crops and multi-species crops, which are providing more late autumn and, and, and winter feed, which is also forcing people to think about when, how they optimise maximally that forage production, which is influencing their management practices and the timing of joining. So because reproduction is the most sensitive component of animal production to strange cull ewes that fail to conceive after mating in hot summers, uh, there's theoretically some selection to heat tolerance because of that. 
what that means for cold tolerance, however, is completely unknown because generally speaking, an animal that's tolerant to heat is susceptible to cold. If you look at the wind chill index comparing goats and sheep, there are problems for newborn lambs when the wind chill index reaches uh, you know, above 1100 kilojoules uh, in those units. But for goats, it's about above 940, which is a pretty mild winter day. But there are also still some examples in cattle and in goats where there are animals that have been bred for hot and cold tolerance together. So it's possible that we could presume that uh, the same can be done for sheep. And that would maybe involve mating in January, February, culling non-pregnant ewes uh, that get pregnant, the farm that get pregnant, and of course use them the farm to rear their land. But that is an extension of a theory from other species and applied to sheep and hasn't been explored scientifically. So we've got a number of management and selection options available to us, and they're governed by a whole bunch of other factors. And I haven't even touched on shearing, the time of shearing, and what that may uh, mean for thermal tolerance. There should be benefits for the animal when it's shorn in spring, and we can look at the literature and demonstrate that. Um, what does that mean? What, is, what impact does that have for your particular production systems? The consideration's a bit too complex for me to answer right now, but there is, there's all of the options we have available to us through management practice change. And Gordon, just before we finish up, a lot of the research that's been done, you mentioned, is quite historical. So what do you think the future looks like in this area? Do you think we can keep pace with the changing climate and where do you think research should be focused going forward? Yeah, that's uh, that's my greatest concern, the rate of a changing climate and our ability to adapt. For example, if we want to start planting trees to provide shade, we don't have a target of how much shade um, and it would take a tree 10, 20 years to start really casting useful shade and maybe 50 or 100 years to really provide lots of shade for animals. So how many trees do we need? How do you make a decision around that? Uh, the rate of climate change, um, in terms of the change rate of climate change, is set to increase. So we're going to accelerate the rate of change. It's not a constant. So the importance of adoption of the findings is, is absolutely paramount. Both uh, AWI and MLA have recognised the effects of heat stress on reproduction in their respect, respective strategic plans. That means the pathway uh, and the support for R&D investment is now there. So, and that change occurred in 2019 and is really largely a result uh, of a handful of us researchers continuing to raise the issue. So what, is, what does the future look like? We've got more heat entering into more environments. We've got a three, nearly a threefold increase in the number of extreme days. We've got up to a four-fold increase in the number of days above 32 degrees. We're already experiencing heat stress. It's really important that we uh, understand the genetic consequences of our current selection practices. If we can identify indicators for thermal tolerance cheaply and easily, we can start to apply those measurements in a lot of locations, particularly um, you know, for the Merino, it's extensively located across Australia. And that might then give us a sense for animals we could select for, other traits we can include in our breeding objective, and what it means in terms of our current selection practices and the emphasis on the existing traits, whether they're increasing the 
susceptibility uh, or not to heat tolerance. And so I think in terms of research, uh, it's a package. We've got, to, we've got to know how to apply the nutritional modifications extensively. We need to understand how much shade is important. We really need to get closer to the genetic understanding, genetic relationships and what options we have there. And then also to consider what are the time of shearing um, interactions that we might be able to place and overlay uh, to provide a range of tools because we will need a range of tools to manage heat stress if we start to experience you know, global temperatures rising by four degrees. Um, that's going to mean maybe five or six degrees increases in temperatures in, in Australia. And that pushes us into some pretty uncomfortable places in our current systems with our current animals. Excellent. Thanks, Gordon. Thanks for the information you have shared with our listeners and for joining me on It's Time For You. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share our podcast within your networks. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales, and you can do this in a number of ways. Join our network by visiting www.sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com.au Find us at Sheep Connect New South Wales on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to seeing you at our workshops and events later in the year. Thanks again for joining us today. Bye for now.